Man, it is cold out that joint today. Good morning, family. Um, it's your boy, Big L, host of the Page Turners podcast, man. Um, thankful that you guys are joining me and tuning in. I just want to send some shout outs right now and do some, some housekeeping before we dig into the text. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, subscribing, sharing, uh, donating. I thank you all for all that you guys have been doing, man. I truly appreciate it. I ask that you would continue. Uh, I believe that the books that we talk about here on the Page Turners podcast can spark conversation. And in that conversation, spark change. Um, one of the key dynamics and key things that I try to do with the Page Turns podcast and the books that we select here is to provide racial literacy. Uh, and I'm going to do a whole podcast, I believe, on breaking down what racial literacy is, the importance of it, the importance for our family, the importance for our community, and really the importance of it for our children. I break it down into three things that I'm not, I don't want to unpack it now, but part of what we try to do with the racial literacy component of the Pacers podcast is for people to be able to recognize, respond, and counter racism, white supremacy. Those are the three things that we try to achieve, man, with each broadcast in our discussions is for people to recognize, respond, and be able to counter racism, white supremacy. And we use the text, the books that we use, the walkthrough to do just that. Uh, this season, season two of the Pace Turner Podcast has been a, a very heart-tugging, um, challenging read in many aspects. This season, season two, the book that we have chosen is Evicted by uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Matthew Desmond. Um, evicted Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads held as wrenching and revelatory vivid and unsettling Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems its unforgettable scenes of hope and loss reminds me of the centrality of home, without which nothing else is possible. Before we dig into chapter six of this episode, man, I know that right now um, there's a government shutdown taking place where certain government employees are not being paid. They're actually working, but they're not being paid because of the government shutdown. Now, I'm not trying to really dig into the political aspects of the why and why the president is doing this and doing like that because I don't want him and his antics and shenanigans to be the highlight of this. I wanted to remain on the people who are the workers, the TSA workers, and all across the, the country 
these government employees who are not being paid. There's been a bunch of stories that come out here lately, man, talking about uh, these workers not being paid and facing evictions that landlords and mortgage companies are either giving eviction notices or foreclosing on homes because these government employees are not able to pay their mortgage or rent. When I went to go pay uh, or to look at a new cable subscribing service because the cable subscriber, the service that I have now, in three months, it's up and I'm a free agent. I can go somewhere else. Uh, Same thing with my cell phone. In three months, I'm up. I can go to another cell phone for subscriber. But on each one of their websites, man, it was talking about how uh, if you are a government employee who is affected by the shutdown, call and talk about late payment arrangements. And I'm just thinking to myself, damn, I can't even imagine at one point in time having a decent government job quote unquote that you're able to pay your rent and do all the things that you possibly can do then one day because of the decisions of one man you're no longer able to do those things you're no longer able to do the basic necessities and needs for your family Uh, it was one story that I read man where the mother and the father both had just gotten a job as TSA workers and they were I think on the job for like maybe 9 to 10 months and they were able to use that 9 to 10 months to climb themselves out of some of the the poverty and the economic despair that they were in the previous 9 to 10 months so they were able to pay bills they were able to get another vehicle you know what I mean they were able to do some of those things that Uh, They felt needed for their family. But then that government shutdown took place. And they're right back in the situation that they were in. I don't think we think enough and talk enough about evictions. We don't talk enough about homelessness. We don't talk enough about poverty. We don't talk enough about the racial wealth gap. We don't talk enough about that 1% that holds all the chips. We don't talk enough about it. Not only do we not talk enough about it, we don't talk enough about the solutions, how to fix it. Family, it's five damn degrees outside right now. Five degrees. With the wind chill, it says it's like minus 10 or 12 or something like that out there. Imagine not having heat. Imagine being homeless. And I don't say these things to try to to, to, to make you feel depressed or down. I say these things and talk about these things hoping that it sparks you into action. Because that's what it's going to take to solve these things, man. So let's dig into this text, man. Season 2 of the Page Turners Podcast, episode number 7, chapter 6. Rat hole. Three generations of Hinkstons lived in the brownish white house on 18th and right. The one in front of Lamar's. Doreen was the mother hen, broad shouldered and broad bellied, 
She was a moon-faced woman with glasses and dark brown freckles flecking her lighter cheeks. For as long as she could remember, she had been overweight and tended to move slowly through the days. Doreen had four children, Patrice, Natasha, CJ, and Ruby, ages 24, 19, 14, 13, and three grandchildren with Patrice, from Patrice. 10-year-old Mickey and his two younger sisters, Jada Four and Kayla May Two. There was also a dog, Coco, a football-sized ankle biter loyal only to Natasha. Damn. After Patrice received Sharina's eviction notice, eviction papers, and moved herself and her children from their upper unit to the downstairs apartment where Doreen lived with Natasha, CJ, and Ruby, all eight Pinkstons and Coco found themselves living together in a small, cramped space. Let's go back real quick, family, and count how many damn people this is. Okay. We got Doreen, plus her four children, that's five, plus three grandchildren, that's eight, an adult, eight people, an adult mother, a early 20s young lady, and three teenagers, a 10-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, and the damn dog. Okay? <sighs> Patrice, Natasha, and CJ responded by spending as much time as they could out of the house, walking the block in good weather or passing evenings in the back apartment, playing spades with Lamar. But at night, everyone packed in. Patrice claimed the smaller of the two bedrooms if she was going to pay half the rent, she argued, then she should get one bedroom to herself, even if it didn't have a door. In the other bedroom, Doreen and Natasha shared the bed while Ruby curled up in a chair at night. Damn it. Mickey bedded down with CJ on a sheetless single mattress in the living room next to the glass table and head-high piles of clean and dirty clothes that didn't fit in the bedrooms. Patrice's daughter slept in the dining room on a single mattress, its corners split open, exposing inner to springs and exfoliated foam. No one slept well. Natasha had a habit of kicking Doreen in her sleep, and Doreen had a habit of rolling over on Natasha or stealing Natasha's pillow and hitting her with it when she tried to tug her back. The older children often missed the early morning school bus. The little ones fell asleep at random times throughout the day. Doreen would come out of the kitchen to find their tiny heads resting on the table or some piece of clothing on the floor. The worst night's sleeps always came on the eve of your birthday. If you fell asleep that night, you can be sure that Patrice would sneak into your room and smear mayonnaise or ketchup on your face. For the past six years, the Hinksons haven't been able to celebrate Christmas. They didn't have the money. On your birthday, you woke up smiling with goo on your face and a cake on the table. The Hingstons loved pranking one another. Once Natasha put Pepper in Patrice's underwear, 
Patrice retaliated by sneaking Ruby out of the house on a day Natasha was put in charge of watching her younger sisters. When Natasha noticed Ruby was gone, she spent the next several hours patrolling the neighborhood, frantically searching. <laughs> the Hinkson's rear door was off its hinges. The walls were poked, marked with large holes. There was one bathroom. Its ceiling sagged from an upstairs leak and a thin, bla- thin blackish film coated its floor. The kitchen windows were cracked. A few dining room windows had disheveled mini blinds, broken and strung out in all directions. Patrice hung heavy blankets over the windows facing the street, darkening the house. A small television sat on a plywood dresser in the living room next to a lamp with no shade. After Matrice had moved downstairs, Sharina discovered that she had been pirating electricity. The meter repair bill would cost $200, and Sharina refused to pay it while Patrice was living with Doreen. I ain't incurring shit, she said. They black asses is going to incur everything, or they're going to be cold this winter. It took the Hinksons a couple months to save $200. During the time, the back of the house, including the kitchen, was without power. Everything in the refrigerator spoiled. The family ate dinners out of cans, ravioli, spaghettios. The Hinktons treated the refrigerator sour-smelling and sitting tomb-like in the kitchen like they treated the entire apartment as something to endure to outlast. It was how they saw the mattresses and small loveseat, too. Each deep burrow with so many roaches they planned to leave them all behind when they moved out. The roaches were there when the Hinktons moved in, crawling the sinks, the toilet, the walls, filling kitchen drawers. They were rushers, Shereen said about Doreen's family. They moved in on top of the roaches. heavy man that's real heavy you know I read stuff like that man man I want to just keep going on you know what I mean I just want to keep pushing through the text but then stories like that grab me and they, they, they pull me and they tug me and they they stretch me. These are, first off, they're people. Then they're children. Children who are living in a home that doesn't have a back door. The back part of the house doesn't have electricity where the kitchen is. The refrigerator is broken. Everything is spoiled. Needs to be clean. The house is pest infested. They only mention roaches, but I'm assuming without a back door, everything else is in there also. They're sleeping on mattresses that, that don't have sheets that the springs are popping out, that the innards are are displayed and able to be seen. People are sleeping in chairs. Mothers are sleeping with daughters. 
There are piles of dirty clothes and things everywhere. They're eating processed foods out of cans that are not being heated up. They're in their desperation. They they, they pirated it or stole electricity just to be able to survive, man. Just to be able to survive. But in their decision to try to survive, they end up incurring the consequences of the attempt to survive in a $200 meter bill. It takes them over a month to save $200 in order to pay this bill just so they wouldn't be cold in the wintertime. Which, based off of their current situation, they're going to be cold anyway. This is a mother, a 24-year-old, three teens, and a bunch of little kids. And good old Sharina. Sharina the landlord, all heart. All heart. Before the Hingstons had moved into Sharina's apartment off of Wright Street, they lived for seven years in a five-bedroom house on 32nd Street. It wasn't perfect, but it was spacious, and the landlord was decent. They pooled their money to make rent $800 a month. Patrice was serving up food at a fast food joint, and after dropping out, Natasha had started working too. Doreen hadn't completed high school either, though she had learned to type 72 words a minute at Job Corps years back. Patrice almost finished high school, making it to the 11th grade, even after having Nikki at 14. But in the end, she started working full-time to help the family stay afloat. At 16, Natasha began logging 12-hour shifts at Quad Graphics for $9.50 an hour, sometimes falling asleep on the printing machines. They didn't ask her age, she didn't offer it. Doreen's monthly income was $1,124, $437 from a state-funded child support supplement, and $687 from SSI, which she received for an old leg injury. In eighth grade, she had broken her hip on Easter Sunday, Her new wedge high heels did her in, and a fracture had never quite healed. Maybe it would have if her father had rushed her to the hospital instead of keeping her home for several days. The old man hated doctors. When his knees began to give out, he just sawed off a kitchen table leg and used it for a cane. On 32nd Street, the Hinksons became a neighborhood feature. The children ran in and out of neighbors' homes, and from her front steps, Doreen got to know the other families on her block. She would rock and laugh with the grandmothers and yell at the neighborhood boys when they terrorized stray cats. When summer arrived, the children would buy bottle rockets from a neighbor and shoot them off in the street. Every so often, Doreen would host a party and invite everyone. Even in that, man, you see the, 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 the... the dysfunction, you see the issues, you see the problems. 
but in that home that they had, which wasn't the best according to the author and according to Doreen, but it was home, it was spacious, it was safe. And they were able to make it through, man. Then one August day in 2005, Doreen turned on the television and saw New Orleans underwater. A muddy expanse filled the city and black bodies bobbled past folks on rooftops. She immediately called her best friend Fanny, asking her to come over. Doreen and Fanny were shocked by what they saw in the news. This is a total disgrace, Doreen remember thinking. After a few restless nights, Doreen felt called to do something more for the flood victims than fret and pray. She left Patrice in charge and boarded a southbound bus with Fanny. She was 41. Patrice was 20. It wasn't like her to do something like this. She was a soft, humming, stoop sitter. I don't go no further than my front porch, Doreen said. But there were moments along the way when she struck out against life's current like the January night in 1998 when she hurriedly packed up and moved the family to Illinois without telling anyone. She needed to get away from CJ and Ruby's father, who would go on to serve a long sentence upstate. After two days on the bus, Doreen and Fanny found themselves in Lafayette, Louisiana. They joined dozens of other volunteers, passing out blankets and serving food. The trip caused the Hinksons to fall a month behind in rent. But they had been long-term tenants and their landlord was loyal. He wasn't sweating me, Doreen recalled. The landlord told her to pay him back when she could. Doreen gave him extra when she had it, $100 here and $100 there. She worked to clear her debt, but then something would happen and she would come up short. Months passed, then years. One damn decision. See, when you live in poverty, family, you don't have the luxury, the ability to go out and miss something. You don't even have the luxury to go out and help other people. Because in your helping other people, you fall back and suffer. She saw tragedy on TV, felt compelled to do something more than fret and pray, and go to Louisiana to help other people. Now she knew damn well she couldn't afford that. She knew it. But see, the thing about being in poverty, and I'm not making excuses for it because I don't agree with the decision. I understand it. I don't agree with it, and I don't condemn her for it. But the thing about being in poverty is you can't afford to make those type of decisions. There's a level of comfort people tend to, to get in when they're in poverty. And that's I don't think that's the acceptance of power, poverty. I think it's more so along the lines of, I know how to get through in poverty. So it's more along the lines of being comfortable with struggle. You feel me? One early spring night in 2008, two neighborhood boys on 32nd Street shot at each other. 
bullet zipped through the Hastings' front door, shattering the window. Natasha, who was 17 at the time, was sweeping up the glass when the police arrived. They asked to take a look inside. To hear the Hingstons tell it, the officers ransacked their house looking for guns or drugs. Patrice speculated that a neighbor associated with one of the suitors had pinned the crime on the three young men who were staying with the Hingstons at the time. Patrice's and Natasha's boyfriends, as well as a cousin. All the police found was a mess. Dishes piled high in the sink. Overflowing trash can and flies. The Hingstons were not the tidiest family, and to make matters worse, they had thrown a party the night before. There were less superficial problems too. Like the plywood board the landlord had haphazardly nailed over a sagging bathroom ceiling. Perhaps because of the mess or because Patrice began snapping at the officers around 2 a.m. or because they believed the Hinksons played a role in the shooting, whatever the case, the police called Child Protective Services, damn it, who called the Department of Neighborhood Services, who dispatched a building inspector who issued orders to the landlord who filled out a five-day eviction notice citing unpaid rent. Doreen had only managed to get halfway caught up when a shooting happened. They had never been in a need to rush. Damn, that... Boy, listen. That one trickle down, that one incident, that one incident that had zero to do with them. Because of the neighborhood they were in, the shooting occurs, they are, are, are innocently involved and everything trickles down and falls the hell apart. Back to the text. After the court commissioner stamped their eviction judgment, the Hinksons needed to find another place to stay quickly. They searched on their own, but without a car or the internet, their reach was limited. They sought help from social workers and would put them in touch with Sharina. <laughs> she showed them the apartment off of Wright Street and they hated it. I wouldn't advertise it to a blind person, Patrice said, but any place the family figured was better than the street or shelter, so they took it. Sharit handed Doreen the keys on the spot, along with a rent receipt, dashed off on a scratch piece of paper. Doreen tucked the scrap with the paid 1,100 rent and security deposit into her Bible. Poor families were often compelled to accept self-standard housing in the harried aftermath of eviction. Milwaukee renters, whose previous move was involuntary, were almost 25% more likely to experience long-term housing problems than other low-income renters. Doreen says she took Sharina's apartment because her family was desperate, but we're not going to be here long. Eviction had a way of causing not one move, but two. A forced move into degrading and sometimes dangerous housing and an intentional move out of it. But the second move could be a while coming. Damn, fam. Listen, man.
I don't even know what to say. Speechless. Literally speechless, man. Hey. I often hear when people start talking about poverty. You know, when they start talking about people being in bad decisions and bad positions, rather financially, they often say, you know, they just went out and worked, went out and got a good job. If they saved their money, they would be in a better position. If they didn't, you know, do this with their money or buy this with their money, they would be in a better position. When you listen to some of the stories from this book, Evicted, and some of the stories from other people online, Tell me, what, what 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 could they have saved on? What could they have not bought? What could they have done to keep themselves out of that position? Not only that, but more importantly, what can they do, the individuals? What can Doreen do to keep her family or to get her family out of that situation that she's in? Realistically. Logically, what, what can she do to get her family out of that situation? Those are the discussions that we need to have. Instead of blaming everybody, I think taking into consideration everyone's actions provides a different context to these discussions. But we don't often do that. We often just want to go to the big Ladies and gentlemen, this is your boy, Big L, man. Thank you for tuning in to episode seven of the Page Turners podcast. It's heavy, baby. It's heavy. Till next time.